MITRE's managed services evaluations making the most out of the attack framework? And don't lose your headcount. Best MSSP talent retention strategies. That and the latest news and trends in the managed security space coming right up on Cyber for Hire. Building bridges between managed security providers and their clients, it's the podcast where MSPs, VCSOs, and end users take a united stand against cybercrime. This is Cyber for Hire. Chasing false positives, battling alert fatigue, finding the proverbial needle in a haystack. It all leads to cybersecurity staff burnout and increased security risk. Check out Managed XDR from NetSurian. NetSurian's OpenXDR platform unifies your telemetry for wider attack surface coverage, deeper threat detection, and ultimately faster incident response. And Naturian SOC empowers your team by doing the heavy lifting with continuous monitoring, proactive threat hunting, and guided remediation. Looking for a true partner instead of another vendor? Visit MSSPAlert.com slash Naturian. All right, welcome, welcome to episode number 12 of Cyber for Hire. How's everybody doing today? I'm Bradley Barth with SC Media in New York, and joining me today in sunny Hawaii is my co-host and partner in cybercrime, Ryan Morris, Principal Consultant with Morris Management Partners. Welcome, Ryan. Uh, and Ryan, once again, if I weren't already jealous that you get to be in sunny Hawaii, I'm now extra envious because people in Hawaii don't have to lose an hour of sleep from changing clocks. See, I'm always only... happy to gain an hour of daylight back in the evening, but still, uh, you know, yeah, it's, the, uh... I, you're always rough losing that sleep. Yeah, there, there, there's no change in sleep unless, as in a modern hybrid working world, you are doing appointments with people who do change their time zone, in which case what was 5 a.m. here becomes 4 a.m. here, and uh, <laughs> you, you really have to plan around things like that. But you know what? That is a sacrifice I am willing to make, so I'll just continue the experiment and make sure everybody knows best practices for working in remote time zones. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough, Ryan. Well, there's plenty to cover today, as always, but some news is just so important it can't wait, which is why we want to share with everyone what's top of mind today. So here's your headline. The White House's new national cybersecurity strategy will shift security liability away from the end user community and over to cyber manufacturers and cloud-based third-party service providers who are in better position to make the digital ecosystem more secure, a policy that will be enforced via additional stricter federal regulation down the line. Ryan, why is this top of mind for you? And by the way, could MSSPs potentially be among the parties that would be held more accountable and liable for instances of cyber insecurity? Or do you think those stricter regulations that will come down the line might be more aimed at the, the major tech developers, manufacturers, and cloud-based services? Uh, you know what? I, I think you've hit on two very important elements of this uh, of this development. Uh, we want everybody to understand, right? Like this is not, we're not doing this as a news headline in the sense that this was breaking news five minutes ago. That's not our style. Our style is to say, what changed in the world and why does it matter to you? And what we've really honed in on here is that the wider world outside of the cybersecurity industry has come around to a way of thinking that those of us in the industry, there's been some of us talking about this for a few years, but up until about three years ago, it was considered heresy to suggest that 
the liability and the responsibility for cyber attacks would come back to the people who make the tools, right? Uh, I don't know, about five years ago, I was standing on a stage at an industry conference and I was making a, a big keynote address, you know, lots and lots of people in the room, and I made the argument for the concept of security designed in, right? If you think about it in the context of an automobile, uh, the purpose of an automobile is to get from point A to point B, and that requires an engine and a gas pedal and a steering wheel right? You got to be able to go where you want. But a long time ago, as a society, we accepted the philosophy that if you're going to sell an accelerator pedal, that for the good of the rest of us, it was also necessary that you sell a built-in brake pedal, right? Like you can go, but you must also be able to stop. We accept that as a fundamental social good. For years, for reasons I don't understand, we have accepted a premise that I can make software and sell it to you with all kinds of security vulnerabilities. And then I just say, hey, buyer beware, it's your responsibility. You're the one who's protecting the data. All I did was sell you software. I think that's irresponsible. And I believe that what we've just seen is that the world outside of cybersecurity has woken up and embraced that security designed in philosophy. Now, let's be careful, right? Because this is a proposal. It is a policy statement. It is not yet law and it will have to go through the legislative process. So my advice to everybody is you should really figure out how to become a mini lobbyist in your own local jurisdiction and with your representatives in Congress in Washington and, and with others that are involved because these things are about to get translated out of idea and into implementation. And the reason I think an MSSP needs to be strictly involved in this is exactly the question that you ended on there. Where will the liability land? Well, unfortunately, the, the what's the logical answer and what will be the practical answer are two different things. The logical answer is whoever made the software should be accountable for making it essentially secure, right? Like I understand there's vulnerabilities and there's innovation in attacks and things like that. Things will always change, but you should be responsible for selling something that is not already vulnerable to any known exploits, right? Like that, I think that's a basic logical threshold that we can all agree on. But the practical implementation will be whoever is best at lobbying. And if the vendors are better at lobbying than the service provider community, I can foresee a world where the accountability is not on the person who made the software. It's not on the person who bought the software. It will land on the people who configure, implement, and maintain that software. If that's the end user with an IT department, cool, the end user takes on that liability. But if they partner with us as third parties for cybersecurity or for managed services in any context, well, hey, I'm accountable for keeping your application up and running dot, 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 that means you're the logical place to take the accountability for any vulnerabilities that go into that configuration. I don't agree with that philosophy. I think it ought to be shared because of bad implementation and a failure to patch and just basic things at the, the street administration level. Those things need to be covered. But we also need to ensure that there is an essential liability that goes back to the software developer 
And I can think of a few very large and very well-funded software developers who don't want that to happen and will be lobbying aggressively. So that's why we wanted to address this one at the top of the show. It's not a news item, guys. This is the future of our industry, and we all need to be vocal about how we go out there and participate. All right, Ryan, uh, great advice as usual for our listeners and viewers. And, uh, you know, we want to hear what uh, you have to say about this and uh, really, you know, anything else that's uh, top of your mind. So uh, by all means, please write to us at cyberforhire at cyberriskalliance.com. We want to hear your comments. Uh, anyway, that is our top of mind hot take for the day. More news later in the show. But first, it's time for our featured InfoSec news and trends topic of the week, presenting our big idea. In security, MITRE's managed services evaluations making the most out of the attack framework. Uh, in late 2022, the MITRE Ingenuity Foundation revealed the findings from its first ever attack evaluations for managed security services providers. Uh, the report measured various MSSPs' ability to recognize, analyze, and report the TTPs of the Oil Rig Advanced Persistent Threat Group. Uh, this session will dig into the findings to help MSSPs better understand where they can stand to improve when it comes to hunting, detecting, and responding to threats posed by sophisticated cyber adversaries. Plus, MITRE will also be revealing a little bit more about how managed security providers can participate in the next round uh, of assessments that they'll be conducting. So it's time to uh, introduce our guest speaker who's going to help lead us through this discussion. Uh, he is Ashwin Radnakrishnan, uh, General Manager of Attack Evaluations at MITRE. Uh, in his role, Ashwin runs attack evaluations, equipping the information security community with objective data, evaluating the technology, and people associated with building a holistic threat-informed defense. Uh, he's continually working to expand the scope of evaluations, branching out to all aspects of the threat-informed security process. Ashwin has served as the lead project manager for multiple InfoSec products and platforms, spanning from threat intelligence platforms to detection response products. Uh, throughout this experience, Ashwin has focused heavily on building toward the attack framework and improving threat-informed defense capabilities within his products. Uh, Ashwin, uh, so glad that you could join us today. And as always, we're going to jump right into it. So uh, let's start by giving us a, a sense as to uh, what the the main purpose of these uh, attack evaluations are. Uh, why for this uh, latest go around did you turn your attention uh, to, to manage services? Yeah, appreciate the great introduction, Bradley and Ryan. Happy to speak again. Um, and so let me start with some top level goals and then we'll lead into why we kind of turned our view to managed services while we've classically done product evaluations. And so as is consistent with all of our evaluation types, we have three main goals. The first is we wanna empower end users like security practitioners and leaders with objective insights into those commercial capabilities that address adversary behavior. And from there, we want to provide transparency around the actual, the true capabilities of these security offerings that of course address known adversary behavior. And then the third, and where I think this audience might resonate most, 
is we want to continue to drive the vendor security forward in in ways that address adversary behavior. And I've used that term three times now, adversary behavior, addressing known adversary behavior. And really, we, we look at the MITRE attack framework as a mechanism to address adversary behavior. And we we believe that a good strategic threat-informed security defense is looking towards that. And so those are the three principles that in all of our evaluation types, we're looking to uphold. I've positioned that to our participants as well as my internal team as our like three major North Stars. If we feel like we've delivered on those goals, we can kind of sit pretty and be happy with what we've delivered. Now, when it comes to managed services, there are maybe objective reasons as well as some subjective reasons why we've looked into that. And the most objective reason, in my opinion, is a survey that we released. And we basically asked organizations, um, you know, do you use managed services uh, providers in your security operations? And in that 58% of the organizations said that they relied on managed services. And on the flip side, when you go to organizations that are smaller than 5,000 employees, that number jumps up to 68%. And across the board, we found that only 50% or roughly half rather, uh, are actually comfortable with their services. And this is in stark contrast to 75% who are more comfortable with their internal kind of uh, stock. And so we thought, okay, well, we deal with managed services providers all the time. We know that it's just a matter of delivering on those three goals that we discussed to improve that comfort level. And ultimately that kind of spawned the, the existence of the managed services evaluation. So a bit long-winded, but I hope that I set the context properly there. No, that's great information, and and I really think it does help the audience here of managed service providers to understand that we are in the crosshairs, right? Like it is, no, th this is no longer a, a sideline or a peripheral type service that's being provided. If your customer depends on you for these services, then your capabilities become the prime indicator of whether or not the customer is secure, right? Um, so I, I'm, I'm very curious as you guys got into this, because I really, as any true natural born consultant would be, I'm a big fan of frameworks, right? I, I've sure. uh, long, long been an advocate of what you guys do at MITRE and particularly in the attack framework because it, it translates a big idea into something very, very tangible. The way you guys went about it in, in this particular evaluation, you used the oil rig uh, conversation to evaluate MSSP capabilities. Um, what, what was it about that particular threat neighborhood that you think is representative of what we're dealing with and what kinds of lessons did you you learn in there? I love that question. And it gives me an opportunity to describe some of the successes of my team and kind of how we go procedurally to answer that question. Now, amongst other specific disciplines that have their own dedicated team within attack evaluations, we also have a cyber threat intelligence team who helps us kind of look at different types of adversaries, look at what is actually relevant on the market, and then, of course, look to challenge the vendor community in keeping in context with the third goal that I shared. And oil rig kind of hit a lot of those factors. And just quickly, we do adversary emulation. 
which kind of gets allows us to have our cake and eat it too, if you will, in the sense that we are emulating specific techniques. And so whether or not your organization is targeted by oil rig, it's does provide that attribution and that kind of overall context. But if you're looking at the bits and pieces and on a more tactical level, the results for each of our participants, you can just look at the techniques as well. So we, we frame the emulation plan around an adversary emulation for oil rig this previous round and, um, you know, trying to kind of, you know, farm out and, and expose the difference between emulation and simulation, if, if that distinction makes sense, is core to kind of what we look to accomplish here. Yeah, and oil rig for for those who uh, you know may not be entirely familiarized with them, but they're a, a threat actor that's generally considered to be uh, a nation state uh, threat actor uh, associated uh, with uh, the uh, Iranian uh, governance, government, and uh, intelligence. Uh, and certainly, uh, when you perform some of these, uh, or or just the attack framework in general, uh, this is meant to be uh, used against actors that can either be of a uh, nation state uh, nature, but also uh, a financially motivated uh, cyber criminal group or a major ransomware group uh, as well. So uh, Ashwin, can you uh, also uh, go into a little more detail about some of the uh, methodology that was employed uh, behind the uh, assessments? Give us some of the details about how this went down. I believe there were uh, maybe 16 uh, MSSP uh, participants that were chosen. Uh, the environment that you uh, chose to basically have this uh, emulated attack was, I think, Microsoft Azure. And I know you employed uh, a couple of uh, various different types of uh, TTPs and used certain methodologies. Uh, so so give us a, a little bit of uh, insights uh, into uh, sort of the, uh, the, the, the flow of the exercise and, and how it all went down. Yeah, great question. And again, to kind of frame set a little bit, um, off the back of our chosen adversary, a couple of changes have been made for managed services compared to our traditional enterprise valuations, which we evaluate detection and protection product capabilities. Um, we completely ran this in a black box environment. So as opposed to us announcing the adversary, giving folks a list of techniques that might be used based on publicly available threat intelligence, we obviously use that internally, but we ran this in a black box context. So folks were actually uh, evaluated on their ability to defend against this completely unknown plan without kind of like the pretest or whatever capability here. And so with regards to how we choose uh, vendors to participate, and I'll use that term, but really speaking, managed services providers in general, right? Um, so like any other round, we open up a call for participation, which hint, hint, round two is coming up very soon. <laughs> and uh, we ultimately don't restrict any types of vendors from joining as long as they provide a managed service. And what our motto is internally is we want to be capability focused, not product category focused or acronym focused, right? So we are acronym agnostic. So MDRs. MSSPs, any type of managed service provider was able to reach out to us and join. And so from there, really the methodology was uh, 
as I described, black box, right? So we open up an Azure environment that simply serves as kind of a means to an end, if you will. We try to limit the actual Azure capabilities from actual use within the environment. So we'll open up the Azure environment. We'll give our participants three weeks to deploy their sensors and their tools and, and you know everything within the actual environment. They also have the ability to teach our team, who at that stage is acting as a quasi-customer, uh, how to actually be a customer. Is there a portal that we need access to? Uh, is there a format that you want to inform us on? And after the third week where we'll run checks to make sure that the sensors and products that they deploy in order to achieve their managed service uh, capabilities, are compliant with our disclaimers, we will go ahead and start execution at an unannounced time on the fourth week. And you know we have a specific cadence internally that we use. And obviously, one of the key things is in the land of a lot of different variables, how do we make sure we limit the variability and consistently and objectively apply our methodology, right? So um, there are a lot of factors, but from Monday, so in this case, it was Friday, right? At you know business hours, we effectively had a red team, you know, enact our emulation plan, and you know throughout the week, we went ahead and received a bunch of content, whether it was portal access, whether it was an email, whether it was uh, Slack, for instance, on a public Slack channel. I mean, that's the reality of how things work these days, right? Um, and you know, we collected all of the data. They had an opportunity to also send us a superset of the data 24 hours after we said, hey, the evaluation is finished. And then we use all that data in our quite rigorous results process, which we kind of calibrate across each vendor, across each step and sub-step within the emulation plan. And of course, we have that publication, which like you'd mentioned, happened late last year on November 9th. And, um, you know, and, and as best as I can summarize, uh, that kind of uh, kind of underscored our general process. So, so I'm I'm curious, right? Again, the the magic of a framework it allows us to take, like you said, <clears throat> very many variables and kind of narrow that down into a controlled conversation. Sure. What lessons did you learn? What 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 did you take kind of take away from the first evaluation? And if, if we put this into the frame of tactics and recommendations for MSSPs, what what were your main takeaways from this first go around? The takeaways from this go around are very consistent with my kind of principles that I want to kind of continue to, um, in my opinion, educate the wider community. It's that. There's really no one-size-fits-all security solution for any type of program, right? And we were talking about this earlier uh, off-camera regarding the people, process, and technology that comprise a cogent security strategy, right? I mean, based on internal factors like what legacy systems do you have? What new systems have you onboarded? What is the makeup of your security analyst. Do you have security analysts at all? Do you have SOCs, SOC 1 through 3 analysts, CTI analysts? And those are just uh, the tip of the iceberg of the internal right factors. And then externally, and you know, taking some cues from my CTI discipline, you know, where are you located regionally, 
right? What is your industry vertical? What is the size of your organization? Those will define, along with other factors, what type of threats that you face. And all of that mixes in together into a very specific type of evaluation of the evaluation results. And so a lot of folks ask me this question is like, well, what's your favorite technique? And I'm like, well, it depends. <laughs> Do you want the objective answer? Do you want what I think? And you know, um, I think that's kind of the beauty of the the breadth of these results. And to to maybe answer a little bit more explicitly, right? Like the purpose of an emulation plan is to cover so many techniques and say, hey, these are during our tabletop exercises on our traffic light chart of our MITRE navigator layer that we've curated and, and you know, gone ahead and, and put together. The areas where we feel like we need to onboard a service, did this service provider that we are evaluating, along with the other three that kind of made our shortlist, cover these very well? But not only coverage, let me look at the content, right? Did the verbiage that they use in their reports resonate with me and my my team? Did the length or frequency or even... Um, I should say like overall volume of reports, is that the type of service we want, right? I, those are all questions and I'm probably raising more questions with your initial question, but that is the, the, the key I think for evaluations is to actively ask the questions to diagnose and then you can figure out the prescription. That, see, and, and I agree with you. I, I think that that's what's important is that people realize there's no such thing as one solution, but there is a way to get to a solution for your situation. Uh, Bradley, you had a question there. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no worries, Ryan. Um, yeah, no, what I was going to say is because really, you know, there. What's what's nice about this uh, report uh, is the fact that um, clients or prospective clients of uh, managed services providers uh, can look at this and say. Uh, you know, hey, uh, you know, who is strong in areas that uh, we need to be strong in? Um, where are areas of weakness that we, you know, may need to uh, address with our managed security services provider? Uh, you know, what can you do to, to strengthen this area where you were a little weaker? On the flip side, the actual providers can look at this report also and make self-assessments and say, you know, here's where we're, uh, here's a key differentiator between us and our competition right now. Here's where we need to uh, improve. And so for uh, MSSPs that uh, read through this report and want to interpret the results. Uh, you know, it's not ranked. So it's not a thing where you have 16 and you've ranked one through 16, who's the best, who's the worst. That's not what it's about. It's about looking at all these different techniques and, you know, each uh, area of category and seeing how, you know, each individual uh, MSSP fared. Um, but can you uh, give us a sense as to if there were any general overall trends? Uh, was there one area where as a whole, uh, the participants uh, fared the best, and where would you say was the most common uh, weak point among your participants? Hmm. I think those trends would be very hard to identify in a grander context, and I'm going to put my objectivity hat on again and <laughs> not inadvertently um, you know, uh, favor one vendor versus the other. I will say that some of the areas that we're looking to extend to are indicative of these types of conversations, meaning 
where we want to continue to influence the vendor community to pull forward are the areas that in round two, which again, we will be announcing very, very soon, especially when this releases on Tuesday, um, that we are looking to, in practical matters, right, influence the type of uh, improvements we want to see in the community. So very hopefully like political answer there, but- um, No, that's, the, that's fine. The, the reason, and, and I can hop into the categories to kind of like answer your question in a roundabout way. So number one, right, what are ways that we can make the scenario more complex, right? Like we view our scenarios as very high definition based on all of the processes we discussed, and we want to continue to challenge folks. The second big category is, you know, how can we improve the participation of our participants and limit the amount of variability, right? Part of the test, if you will, is not understanding how to take the test. That should be, you know, uh, a wash for every single participant. And then as we get to kind of some of the juicier items that I think, again, will resonate with this audience, what are some metrics that we can capture and publish this round that we didn't previously? Now, this is a direct answer to your question, as a matter of fact, right? Can we count the content that is sent to us in a meaningful way? For instance, if you fired on a million alerts and got credit, which we hate that word in general in evaluations, but for all of the substeps within the valuation, is that really what your client is looking for? Probably not. Their email is going to be flooded. And ultimately, we just want to be informed on the worst things, not all of the things, right? So can we count content that leads into efficiency? And is there an objective and consistent way to capture three of my favorite metrics for this type of service, which is mean time to detect, mean time to respond, and mean time to investigate, which is the delta between the first two. We can do that. I think we can start you know, measuring folks objectively on these things that I feel folks will use when they're evaluating these services vendors. There's a lot more like how do we support remediation? How do we incorporate important factors like attribution into our officially curated results? And right, like there's external, I, I should say internal impacts to us as well. Like we can capture all of this data. <laughs> how do we display it responsibly on our website, AKA our evaluations platform? So um, just to kind of give you an indication of what we favor, what needs to improve in the overall community, and where our methodology is leading towards with regards to capturing these types of aspects. See, that's a, that, that's a lot of very good practical advice. And I hope everybody listening in, you can start to take notes on these kinds of recommendations. Um, I take away a very important focus on speed. And I, I think everybody would agree that that our ability to not just quote unquote, build the defenses, but to use those tools in real time actually makes the difference. And, and it's, you know, our, our threshold for the time to detect and the time to respond, you know, that used to be 
days and sometimes weeks in terms of publishing things from an industry level. I don't think the threshold is days anymore. I think it might be minutes. And that's something we all need to learn how to actually get up for, right? So um, a quick tactical question for you, for anybody who's interested in reading the report or perhaps following up and participating in the second go-round, where would they go for that kind of information? So great question. If you are looking to see the end result, aka our output, there are two places where I would suggest. The first is our attack evaluations results platform. Uh, it's attackevals.miter-ingenuity.org. I'll try to share a link so it's a little bit more accessible. And alongside those releases, all of our releases, I also publish with the help of my wonderful team, frankly, uh, a read-along collateral. And it's an article of what are the specific components of this evaluation release, as well as this time and in the future, the top 10 ways to interpret the results, because they could be a little bit tricky, especially if you are a business-focused individual looking to go ahead and onboard uh, you know, a new services and, uh, 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 offering. And both of those kind of work in conjunction. The platform is amazing. On top of that, we do publish everything publicly. We, we view the evaluations as like a bit of a public utility for everybody to, to hopefully realize the three goals that I mentioned in the beginning. And to that end, we actually, after publishing, publish our uh, emulation plan, a lot of the operational flow, a lot of those components on our uh, Center for Threat Informed Git, uh, Defense GitHub as well. So all of that, the components, as well as how to interact with the results, are with that read-along article on Medium. And I suggest those two mediums to go ahead and understand more. And then the last part of your question, I believe, is how do folks that are interested um, you know, get involved in this upcoming round? Uh, this is extremely timely because within a week or two of us publishing this, you will see a big, big announcement. I think we do a great job of touching the right people. However, if you are already interested based on my wonderful <laughs> speaking here so far, feel free to e- email evals at miter-ingenuity.org and we will get you set up as soon as the time is right. Excellent. Right. And, and and again, I hope what everybody is able to take away from this, all that detailed information that you are sharing, not just about the findings, but about the methodology, the goal here is to demystify and take fear out of the conversation. Yes, there are complicated attacks out there. Yes, there are threats that are coming at us from from directions we've never anticipated. But we can do something about it. And if we get better at the evaluation and the practicing process, then our ability to respond in the real world actually gets much, much better. So I really appreciate you guys doing this kind of work. And hey, if, if what you're studying is what you want the vendors to improve upon, advocate for what you want out there in the world, right? Like that's the best way I can see to make changes happen. And you guys are doing some really good work. Uh, I want to pivot for a second though, before we let you go uh, into a segment that we call What Scares You? Because for all of the things that we talk about in this industry, uh, there's a lot of chicken littles and a lot of people that are saying, you know, the sky's falling and whatever. We try to dispel that fear mentality. But what we know for sure is that people who are serious cybersecurity professionals, 
we see some stuff behind the curtains and there's some things that legitimately still get us as the pros. Seeing what you see with all of your experience in the industry, what scares you in the cybersecurity world right now? So I'm going to give maybe the most popular answer to most security professionals at the very moment. It is the advent of AI-focused writing like chat GPT. Um, the reason that scares me is I'm, I'm, my discipline is in product management and I understand the base and then like building the fixtures after like, you know, pouring the foundation, et cetera. And the future of where this is going is really concerning to me because I think adversaries can use these types of tools to create really, really high definition spear phishing emails, just as an example, that are going to really elicit a lot of links from folks that are way more intelligent than, um, you know, the folks that are uh, being attacked right now, right? Like I've seen some of these online, whatever the case is, and they're genuinely scary because I don't know how they're finding all of the information, but they are looking more and more realistic. And we had a good conversation about this again off camera, but right. We can all, we, we can't all control every aspect of entry, initial access into a system, right? I mean, we aren't all security professionals, but we're all tasked with security. And the more realistic those spear phishing emails get, the more and more worried I am about that attack vector. So anyways, uh, doesn't keep me up at night per se, but it, that is what I am most afraid of at the moment. See, for those of us that are, our job is to be in control and to present calm to the world among chaos the things that actually get us like that, and, and I agree with you on this one, those are things that the wider world needs to start paying attention to. So uh, hopefully people are aware of that. You know, we, uh, we, we were saying before we jumped on here for, for today's conversation, you know, the, the wrong way to do this is, ah, it's terrible. Don't, don't ever connect to the internet, right? Fear is not <laughs> going to solve this problem. But also what's not going to solve this problem is scolding the people who mm. might click on something, right? You know, being the cybersecurity department and getting a reputation reputation for we are the people who scold you in public when you accidentally click on something that doesn't make anybody want to interact with us that doesn't make us popular at the staff meeting right but it also it mutes their willingness to share and i think like you say as artificial intelligence yields much more high definition and realistic attacks these things will sound human they will feel exactly. very natural and if we're scolding people about falling victim to those things, we will be the last ones to know when they enter our environment. So I, I would yeah. agree with you on that fear. It, 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 is, it is kind of really interesting how, you know, with today's uh, cybersecurity professionals, as proficient as they can be uh, in computers and, and, and know their, their devices and know their programming inside and out, you, you know, you still have to worry about the end user who is fully human. And, you know, until humans are entirely, you know, replaced by robots and AI in the future, which I think we're still thankfully a little ways away, you need to be well-versed in, in both sides. You can't just be all about, you know, computer functionality. You have to understand what makes humans tick, 
too. And that mm-hmm. is a missing piece of a lot of security uh, leaders' uh, resumes. They need to understand uh, and connect with uh, the, the human user better. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. All right. Well, uh, interesting, uh, interesting little diversion there. Uh, thanks for uh, giving us a good, a good scare. Uh, and uh, it was, it was uh, no, but it was great talking to you, Ashwin. And uh, we appreciate uh, giving us your uh, your perspective and your rundown of the the miter evaluations uh, as well. And uh, certainly uh, would uh, encourage uh, the various uh, MSSPs and other service providers to uh, go again, look up your report and uh, perhaps participate in your uh, exciting, uh, you know, next round of evaluations. I'll be uh, very curious to hear uh, whose attacks you'll be uh, emulating next. But uh, in the meantime, uh, thanks one more time to uh, to, to Ashwin uh, Radhakrishnan at uh, MITRE Attack Evaluations. I appreciate your time. It's going to wrap up the first half of our show. Please return for the second half of our episode, which will feature our MSSP business and industry topic of the week. Don't lose your headcount. Best M- best MSSP talent retention strategies. That plus our InfoSec News Rundown and our Dear Cyber for Hire Advice column segment. All that coming up, so we will see you in a moment on the other side. You know what's frustrating about managing security as an MSP? It's knowing that even after you've reviewed a system, firewall, or endpoint to make sure it's secure, it can still change the next day and you might never find out. Let me tell you, that sucks. That's why I want to tell you about LionGuard. See, some vendors talk about being a single pane of glass, but LionGuard actually delivers. They pull data from over 70 systems, use automation to detect changes, and alert you about the things that matter via a ticket in your PSA. If you truly want to secure your customers, visit MSSPAlert.com slash LionGuard. Check it out for yourself or sign up for a demo today. All right. Welcome back to Cyber for Hire, the managed security podcast. Once again, I'm Bradley Barth with SC Media. In the first half of the show, we talked about MITRE attack evaluations of managed services providers. Uh, I would certainly encourage uh, anyone who uh, hasn't uh, watched that first segment yet to to go back and watch. Lots of interesting uh, stuff to talk about there. But right now, I'd like to welcome back my co-host, Ryan Morris from Morris Management Partners, because it's time for us to examine our MSSP business and industry news topic of the day. Presenting our big idea in business, don't lose your headcount best MSSP talent retention strategies. In the cybersecurity job market, it's advantage worker, as the demand for talent has opened up a world of possibilities for security professionals to seek out greener pastures. Meanwhile, other InfoSec pros are so stressed and burned out that they're looking to quit the daily grind altogether. These factors have combined to create a cyber talent turnover crisis, which can result in organizational instability, stalled implementations, slow responses to threats, and overworked, stretched thin employees. Uh, so in this segment, we're gonna identify some of the best talent retention practices and policies that will give you better odds of earning loyalty 
from your cyber workforce. So, you know, Ryan, we've made mention uh, in previous episodes of the talent shortage and turnover problem uh, on several occasions. So rather than ask you again to paint a picture of that problem, uh, I, w- I would like to ask you, uh, would you say that um, MSP- MSSPs uh, have it a little bit better or a little bit worse or pretty much the same uh, as the rest of the uh, uh, cyber hiring community when it comes to retention issues. Um, so excellent setup. And what I will, I'll agree with you. We all get it. There is a talent shortage and a talent retention problem in the world of MSSPs. We should have a natural advantage. Should is a dangerous word, right? We should have a natural advantage for finding getting and keeping talent because we present a working environment opportunity that hits on what many of the characteristics or the the preferences are for the people most likely to work in this industry segment, right? Uh, We give them diversity of of challenges and and working opportunities. We give them uh, rapid feedback and clear metrics in terms of whether we're performing successfully and customer satisfaction and whatnot. And we give them the opportunity to grow with their clients, but also within our own organization to track an accelerated career path that's probably much faster and much more lucrative than it would be on the client side of the house. All of those things should spell out an environment where an MSSP, we should have better access to finding the the young and up and coming workers. We should be able to recruit away at will. We should be able to invite people in and not only rely on more money as the technique, right? We should be able to capitalize on that. And then once people are in, we should be in a, in a situation where they choose to stay longer. But did you notice how many times I said should in that observation? <laughs> um, should does not equal reality. And what we're finding in the research is that tenure for the senior executive, tenure for department heads, tenure for street-level tacticians, warriors that are doing this kind of, of work Unfortunately, across all three levels, retention rates are equally low and declining, right? Now, I I think you touched on something interesting. Um, It's a good time to be a cybersecurity professional, right? Because there are opportunities galore. There are people who are desperately recruiting, and you could probably make a bunch of money if you were in the marketplace and were looking to trade up. Um, so, uh, you know, it's it's good news for the humans. It's a challenging thing for, for the organizations. And we are seeing these numbers, the, the actual tenure uh, d- duration for the professionals in the industry, the acquisition rate, and the, uh, the, the promotion rate along a career path. All three of those metrics are going in the wrong direction across the industry. So that's why we really wanted to hone in on, and start talking tactics, because we're not winning right now as an industry. Yeah, and I mentioned a couple of primary scenarios for people leaving, and one is uh, an employee seeking out greener pastures. So uh, how, as a managed services uh, provider, do you make sure that your employees 
don't get poached. It obviously starts with being competitive on on salary, on money. But like you said, uh, it can't be uh, all about that. And I'm sure there are other things to consider, like various you know perks and benefits and work-life balance and opportunity for uh, professional development and growth. So you know, let's uh, talk about uh, you know how all of that uh, basically comes together for you to create uh, as an idealistic and um, you know uh, appealing an environment as possible to make it, you know, a place where people want to stay. You know, if should is a dangerous word in a conversation, another equally dangerous one is culture. Uh, I, I get that as scientists and technical professionals, many people in our industry are reluctant to describe what we do in the context of culture, right? There's process, there's methodology, there's technology, there's ways that we can track all of these metrics and, and we can get, issue very objective reports about improvement and or vulnerabilities. But these are still humans that we're dealing with. And so my first piece of advice is that we must embrace the human holistically and make them want to be a part of our culture. That is something that not every one, not every business, and I don't care what industry you're in, not every business cares about that. And not every business is good at that. And it creates a competitive opportunity, right? Because the bar is not exceptionally high in terms of, building a culture that will make people overlook a little bit of additional money and, and a job change to choose to stay where they are. There, there's some people who argue, oh, you know, it's a slippery slope and you can get out of control with the perks and the bennies and all of the things that go into keeping people around. My experience is the grass is rarely greener on the other side. And most people in the industry, regardless of where they're working, express the same low levels of satisfaction. So it's not like we're operating at, you know, like an all-star level here and we have to get all pro above all-star. We just have to do fundamental things, right? The first thing that I would do is, is to recommend that we embrace people in the context of their human experience, which is two parts, right? Inside work and outside work. Now, I know as an industry, we have spent a lot of years saying anything outside of work, keep it outside of work, don't, don't allow it to come here, be an adult, be a professional. I hear you, and yet I don't believe that humans can separate into two entities and just leave it all behind. I think people need to know that we understand who they are, that they have experiences, that their lives are ongoing, their marriages, their children, their homes, their financial situations, uh, you know, caring for an elderly parent. These things happen and they impact the life experience of a human and that impacts their ability to perform when they come to work. So the first piece of advice is let's be a little bit more open-minded and let's embrace the human where they are. The second piece of advice kind of follows on from that, and that is on the side of the career, people don't just come to work to do their job today. They want to know about job security. They want to know about job dynamism, what's interesting and fun and dynamic to do. They want to know about career path and growth opportunities, and they want to understand development and the investment that's going to be put into them as people to make them better at what they do. 
I am finding tremendous good results when we talk to organizations about saying, you know, when you come in here and you start your job, whether you are senior or junior, let's embrace the fact that this is a good opportunity for you. You're happy to be here. You're happy with the salary. You wouldn't have taken the job, right? These are good things. Let's commemorate those. And then let's look forward and say, here's where we see you going three months, six months into the future, a year into the future, what promotions might be available, what seniority, what escalation in your career, and here's how we're going to help you get there. A, admit that humans are humans and embrace both sides of them, and then B, don't just focus on the task at hand. Understand that people show up every single day in the context of my job is not just the moment that I'm doing it. It's this long, it's this longitudinal thing, right? It, it stretches into the future. And if I see a black hole, if I have no opportunity, no incentive, no motivation for growth, if I don't believe that's going to happen here, I am a very prime candidate to be recruited away. So let's spell that out and be explicit with people. And they might actually embrace the journey and not just the daily tactical experience. All right, great. So that handles uh, the side of things where you're trying to you make your work environment uh, a more uh, pleasant and appealing place to work by building uh, a, a better uh, culture and and having opportunities uh, for for growth uh, for your uh, employees, uh, creating an overall better environment. Um, now let's also talk about the stress slash burnout uh, side of the issue. People who are just looking to get out of the, the daily grind of, uh, you know, day-to-day -day, uh, cybersecurity work, that's a hard problem to solve. The job is the job. We obviously had a recent episode about uh, how to minimize uh, worker stress. So I don't want to be too uh, repetitive there, but, you know, obviously uh, there are some policies, some of which we discussed in that episode, which uh, might be good to uh, to adopt uh, to help uh, maybe alleviate some of that stress and and, and make a worker a little less likely to uh, to quit and walk out on the job. Also, Ryan, just to tread a little bit of new ground, is there a way at all to profile potential hires to see if they are equipped to stand up to the rigors of the job? Are there also warning signs that a person that you hired or maybe considering a hired appears to already be, uh, you know, jaded, unenthusiastic, beaten down, etc.? Yep. And see... This is where it gets very specific to the world of cybersecurity, right? What I said in the beginning is applicable to any organization. What we need to dig in on is the unique challenge of cybersecurity. As you've said, stress and burnout are inherent in what we do. The quantity of attacks, the effectiveness of attacks, the, the diversity of attacks is always going up in all three of those metrics. And basically, we live in a world where there's only two outcomes. Either you get hacked or you don't get hacked. And that puts a tremendous like live or die type of pressure on every single thing that an individual is asked to do. I don't think that that is either a, optimal for the way that we operate, or B, a, a sustainable type of a conversation. I, my The very first thing that I have learned about cybersecurity is that 
the most difficult thing that we that we are dealing with is finding enough people to get them in. And because it takes so long and it's such a rigorous process to find, hire, train, onboard, and then finally deploy for full productivity an engineer who can do this kind of complicated work, we need to pay attention to the retention every bit as much as we pay attention to the acquisition. And the way that we've seen that work very most effectively in the real world is to give people cycles of intensity. And what I mean by that is, you know, you think about it from a military context, right? If I am a frontline soldier, if I am a Navy SEAL and I am a specialist operator in the most dangerous, most intensive battle front ground operations, I cannot live like that every single day for 365 days in a row. The military learned a long time ago that your most intense and highly specialized operators need a break. That's why they will be deployed for a tour for four months. They will come off tour and they will go back to rest and recuperate, but also train incorporate their lessons learned, improve their capabilities before they are redeployed into the front lines. Think about this in a cybersecurity context. The people that we have doing the work every single day, they know stuff, right? Not only do they have the technical training, certification, and skills that we're looking for, but they know our clients, they know our tool sets, they understand our methodology, the, the institutional knowledge of, uh, you know what, that client often has this issue because there's a, a, a piece of configuration that they haven't updated, so it's not as an emergent, as much of an emergency perhaps as it might seem, or they might understand that dealing with certain clients requires uh, a slightly different communication style because of the way that messages are sent and received. That institutional knowledge is incredibly valuable. If we just run people ragged until they pop and then we they go away and we replace them, not only do we replace the human, the quantity and the skills, but all of that institutional knowledge as well. What if instead we said, you know what, you're in there doing this for a season and then we take you out and we bring you back over here to focus on tools, on process, on improving our methodology and testing it out to verify, training your peers to make sure that they understand these new innovations and enhancements. And then once you have completed that season of improving the machine, then you go back into the front lines and somebody else cycles off into that improvement role. The pushback that I hear on this kind of technique is, well, well that means that if I need to staff X number of technicians, that means that I need X plus 20% in order to keep people cycling through, and that's more expensive. And my answer is, uh, which is more expensive? The plus 20% in staff that we are cycling to minimize burnout or the finding, recruiting, hiring, training, and ramping of a whole new crew of individuals once we inevitably burn out literally everyone on the staff, right? Uh, in stark terms, it's always more cost-effective to allow our people to breathe for a minute. Don't make them 24-7 365 always in the trenches or they will pop. To your last question, and I think that we can we can definitely expand our thinking here as an industry as well, there is 
a set of personality characteristics that is more likely to thrive in this environment. Resilience and openness and challenge factors, the competitive nature that, that some people have. There are attributes of human psychology that make a person more likely to be okay in a pressure cooker environment. Ironically, one of the places we have seen the most similar profile of people who thrive in cybersecurity is in people who thrive in high-end restaurant kitchens, right? You, you've seen the television shows, right? Uh, people in restaurant kitchens that shout at each other and throw things around and, yes, chef, no, chef, I, I, I will not operate that way. Um, for as funny as that might be, because we're just watching it on television, you look at what they deal with, it's constant. It is unrelenting. Once you are in the dinner rush, it doesn't matter whether you feel okay. It doesn't matter whether you want to be here today. I need you to switch on, plug in, and just execute brilliantly no matter what. Um, that is not something they do 24-7. And the industry has a reputation for A, high burnout, and B, for the people who do stick around for blowing off steam, often in some pretty destructive ways. Um, that's something that we can learn from, right? I, I think that what we need to do, put people in, let them learn, be mentored and grow, but then let them come out of the line of fire. Let them relax for a hot minute to recuperate, to share their knowledge, to improve our systems before they go back in and somebody else cycles out. And we know that on a daily basis, this is not just the forever doom channel that I'm stuck in into the infinite future. We know for a fact that it has an end and that there will be a time when I get to step away. And it's not because I quit. It's not because I wasn't good enough. It's because the business recognizes my institutional knowledge. Every time I cycle in and cycle out, I am a much more valuable component who should get promoted, who brings radical institutional knowledge. And we can actually get people to stick around much longer than the typical burnout cycle. Yeah, well, there you go, Ryan. I mean, not only did you just give some great uh, strategies for retention there, but you also just gave a, a great strategy for, for bringing in some new hires. Just, you know, walk into your local Chipotle kitchen <laughs> and just point at the, the kid behind the, the stove and just be like, you kid, have I got an opportunity for you? You're perfect. <laughs> yeah, you know, so, go, go downtown to a really high-priced restaurant and look for the people who are tired of getting shouted at by the chef and go, you know what? You got some characteristics that we might want over here. I could bring you into an opportunity and you'd never go home smelling like grease. Wouldn't That's that right. be an improvement? <laughs> All right. All right. Before we wrap, I actually, I do want to talk to you about um, workarounds. Uh, like if you can't uh, really solve the turnover problem uh, through improving your, in, uh, your retention rates, then are there at least things that you can do uh, in the realm of like um, – you know, knowledge management, building kind of a business continuity or line of succession type program that can help you smooth over transitions when 
core members of the team come and go, maybe a little bit of automation as well. So yeah, obviously still, ideally you want to be able to keep people, but still some people are going to, to leave so that you don't entirely lose their knowledge and experience when they go. Uh, what kind of policies uh, can you implement uh, to, to, like I said, make that transition a little smoother? So it's a great observation. None of us will bat a thousand, right? Nobody will have a perfect track record for retention. It's just not realistic in the industry where we work. In order to plan for that, we need methodology, documentation, knowledge management, and cross-training, right? Now, there's, there's, there's science that goes behind each of these things that I'm talking about, but there, there are some very practical things as well. Uh, I, I've often said, and, and sometimes controversially in, in the industry, a lot of businesses say out loud that their most important asset is their people. Right. You, you've heard a lot of businesses say that our people are our most important asset. And my first observation is I don't believe you, because if they were, you would treat them better. But also, even if I did believe you, I would think that that's dangerous, because if your business is predicated on the retention of key individuals, then you are dead in the water when those individuals leave. What we need is method and process and systematic institutionalized ways of doing work in order to allow the humans to come in and thrive, allow them to demonstrate the value that they bring to the conversation, but at the same time, allow them to unplug and plug in another equally valuable or capable individual, and the machine continues working. Now, the genesis of this conversation today uh, that, that we're talking about, right? We, we've been reading about research that it, it's not just it's not just staff workers, right? It is CISOs. It is very senior executives in the cybersecurity world who indicate like 50% probability of leaving their job in the next 18 months. Could be for greener pastures, could be for uh, for the burnout reasons. We understand that. But if you lose your CISO and you do not have documented plans, infrastructure, strategies for improvement, methodologies for operation and execution, the human resources plan, if that stuff's not documented and your CISO says, hey, guys, I'm not coming back after next Friday because I'm burned out and I just can't deal with it anymore – between now and their two weeks notice is desperately short of enough time to do that kind of documentation and knowledge transfer. It's not going to happen. It has to begin today. How we do what we do and why we do it needs to be institutional knowledge, not individual intellectual property, right? Like that, that's, that's the, the fundamental premise that we need to get to. And if you can, right, document your method and your strategy, understanding it from an operational point of view, as well as a business model point of view, if that stuff can be documented, then what you'll find is that bringing in a new person and ramping them up to capability is significantly faster and less painful. Retention tends to last longer because people don't have that feeling of, you know, well, you're just here to do anything and everything, whichever fire happens to start, you're the only one who's who's around to figure it out. They know their scope. They understand what their sphere of responsibility is, and that gives them 
more control and more of, of the the feelings of being above that that desperation level of burnout. And if you need to replace a key individual at any layer of the organization, that documentation makes it easy to unplug and replug and continue to move forward. So uh, I am I am not a person who is you know, by nature, terribly organized, right? I'm the guy with stacks of stuff on my desk because I know what's in there and I don't want anybody else to move my papers around because because I know where they are. Thank you very much. But along the line, I have become a an advocate of the principles of process documentation, of strategic methodology, and of following through on the implementation of consistent, repeatable methods. That is the only way an organization can sustain, much less grow and maintain the same kinds of output that they need. It is easier, ironically, to document what we do in a technical world because it is very, very dependent on technology and systems and automation. So we can write this stuff down. And then we also have to document what the humans do, right? The knowledge work that's associated with it. But I am I am just absolutely adamant about the fact that if you cannot explain to a potential new hire exactly what your method is, soup to nuts on how you do everything that you do and then where their role will be and how they will they will perform their job. If you can't explain that to somebody outside of the organization, nobody's going to want to come inside the organization. So let's make sure we get focused on that workaround. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm picturing right now, you know, your, your desk with all the stacks of paper. I think we might have the same filing system, uh, actually, Ryan. Thank, thank God that uh, over the years, everything's gone paperless because it's made my life a lot easier because otherwise I think my uh, house that I've been working out of at this point would be like, you know, floor to ceiling paper otherwise. Exactly. You know, they, they, they can see us coming from a mile away. We are, <laughs> we are, you know, wearing a tweed jacket with elbow patches and stacks of paper and our hair going crazy. Uh, you know what? With, we... Game recognizes game. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So that was our big idea in business, and we would love to hear your feedback. So please reach out to us at Cyber4Hire at CyberRiskAlliance.com. We have more to come in today's episode, our news rundown and additional uh, insights and information. But uh, before that, it's a segment that we like to refer to as Dear Cyber4Hire. This is an advice column type segment where we get involved in the relationships between service providers and clients, and we try to understand how we can help mend fences to improve not just the technical function, but the human aspects of these relationships. So we're going to present a scenario to you here that is anonymized to protect the innocent, but it is based on a real conversation that I had this week with a uh, with an MSP who is dealing with this challenge in the real world. So uh, Bradley, let me let me toss it over to you to do the setup. All right. Thanks as always, Ryan. Yeah, we've got some juicy MSSP melodrama for you today. And this one comes from the client side of the relationship. So guys, cue the music. Dear Cyber for Hire, is my relationship pause to wipe away tear a sham? I'm starting to think my significant other only wants me for my money. 
Well, I mean, in a way, I guess that makes sense. I mean, I am, after all, supposed to pay my MSSP for their services, but we never used to argue about money. Until that is, they shifted their pricing format options when it was time to renew our contract. I prefer to be charged per device. Now they want to charge me per user, which doesn't work for me. Also, because they don't offer an all-inclusive option for their services, I'm starting to feel like I'm getting nickel and dimed for everything. There's a right way and a wrong way for charging for services, and this new pricing structure change feels very much wrong. Is my MSSP a pause for dramatic effect? Gold digger? Monetarily yours, feeling financially fleeced in Philadelphia. Now, Ryan, do you have an idea what they might be talking about here? Are there certain MSSP pricing structures or formats that are more client-friendly than others? Or is it more just the idea that the client was already used to one pricing format and suddenly they have to deal with a change that makes them think that they're uh, being taken advantage of? Uh, you know what? It is both, right? And, and I will say... I. I I, I resonate with this relationship issue because we have heard it so many times. The pricing format or the, the calculation scheme that we use to charge for our services as MSSPs, this is a vibrant world of discovery, opportunity, and experimentation. There are a lot of opinions about what is the best way to charge for our services. And you know what? It depends on who you are and how you communicate this information, but also in a very important way, it depends on who your clients are and what they are comfortable with, right? There is no such thing as a single scheme for charging for your services that's going to be equally acceptable or comfortable for every client out there. So I embrace the debate and I have opinions about what is the right way or a better way to price for our services. But at the same time, I recognize that however you do this, the point of change in the, in the pricing mechanism is perhaps one of the most vulnerable and fraught moments in the history of a business relationship, right? You went out there, you found this client, you understood their needs, you, you recognized some form of chaos and pain in their environment that motivated them to outsource this vital service to you as a service provider. They liked what your capabilities were. They bought your value proposition. They, they believe they're getting something in return for their money. And they turned around and signed a contract. Okay, that was not an easy process, and that's not something that we should take for granted. But if we change that on them later on, right, because we decide per device is, uh, is, is spiraling out of control and it's causing the customer to feel nickeled and dimed, I, I think that that is a common refrain in the environment right now. Um, if we look at it and we say, you know, per user, per business function, per business system, whatever your, your scheme of choice is, there may be a perfectly valid justification for why you are making that change. But if you just bring it on people, it's always going to cause a problem and a fight in the relationship based on, A, you're undermining what I thought was the basis of our relationship and you need to give me an understanding of why things need to be different, right? Because people want that kind of an explanation. But also, you are bringing money to the forefront of a conversation in a way that needs to be handled gracefully and professionally. 
I think that in my personal experience, right, for the million technical brains that I have known over my life and my career, the coexistence of a graceful ability to discuss money matters is very, very thin, right? Uh, whether it's our left-brained tendencies, whether it's our uh, very matter-of-fact communication styles, whether it's that we just want to be done with the delicate parts and move on and get back into process, whatever it is, those of us that are better at technology tend to be less good at dealing with the delicate interpersonal things and money might be the most potentially delicate of all of those interpersonal conversations. Whatever your scheme, however you choose, my advice to you is that managing the communication process is more important than the scheme itself, right? Whether you want to be per device or move from device to user, move from user to uh, to business function, move from a, an individual calculation to an all-in calculation. You know what? You do the research, you understand your customers, you can make that choice. Whatever choice you make, do not take for granted that announcing it and just saying, this is the way it is, and you can either take it or leave it, that lots of people are going to leave it. Right. And even if they like you, even if they like your services, if you don't communicate these changes professionally, gracefully, and with an understanding of what's in it for the customer, doesn't matter how good your justification is. It doesn't matter whether it's lucrative for you, whether it saves money for the customer. You need to massage this communication in a way that produces an outcome of alignment and engagement that strengthens the relationship rather than breaks it down. There you go. So bottom line, if you're the MSSP that's playing a little fast and loose with your pricing structure, then it may be you ultimately who ends up paying the price. So hopefully our listeners have learned from this and don't make the same mistake. And remember, if you've been struggling with your managed security services relationship, whether you're the user or the provider, we want to hear from you, so please write to us at Cyber for Hire at CyberRiskAlliance.com, and we might use your letter in a future episode. All right, well, as any security practitioner can tell you, there's no shortage of headlines filling up the cyber news feeds every single day. So we wanted to highlight a few items that we curated just for you. So we present to you the security detail. And Ryan, as always, I'm going to start you off with a headline. Here you go. A vulnerability in the OAuth implementation by Booking.com could allow for full account takeover. So it is springtime and it is the season when everybody starts looking forward and saying, I am very tired of this weather and I would like to get out and go on vacation. And therefore, traffic on Booking.com and all of the other booking sites in the travel industry is trending up towards seasonal peaks. And we're, we're getting a lot of this. Right at the beginning of that conversation uh, of, of the seasonal escalation, we hear a news item from the folks at Booking.com that, oh, hey, by the way, we used a very common protocol that in this particular instance was, was used to allow the individual uh, users to log in via Facebook, right? You're, you're familiar with that kind of methodology. Log in with Google, log in with Facebook. Uh, the way that they had implemented that protocol allowed somebody to go in 
and actually spoof it and take control of that customer's entire account of everything they've ever submitted, which if you've ever booked on one of these sites is not just your name and your address, but your credit card number and a lot of other personally identifiable information. Now, the good news is this was identified by a researcher. It was fixed and then prevented before any exploits were actually documented. So congratulations on the research as well as on the rapid response. But this is a word of caution to everybody in an interconnected world. Listen, uh, your systems talk to third parties and there are standardized protocols that allow us to share data and log in and trade information. The more standardized something is, the more readily available it is to be vulnerable to attack, right? If it's custom, it's weird, and therefore people have to figure it out. That's the psychology behind passwords. But standard interface protocols, um, those things get easier and easier to hack. Let's make sure we've got all of the right configurations, that it's locked down and it's implemented uh, locally. It's not a question of whether or not your system should be connected to other people's. It's a question of local implementation fidelity that makes these things secure. So let's pay attention, especially as we move into summer vacation season. Headline number two, Bradley, let me toss this one back to you. Security vendors report an economic hit as they struggle to lure newer customers. What uh, what'd you learn? What do we need to understand? Yeah, well, you know, SE Media's Mengen Shao reports that during this uncertain economic period, security vendors are starting to notice a downturn in client spending and new business. Uh, and vendor and client strategies may be changing as a result. Uh, identity company Okta, for instance, noted in a recent earning call uh, that organizations uh, are uh, now starting to, because of a, a lack of long-term uh, contracts, uh, the, the company Okta is, is starting to emphasize uh, its focus more on retaining and upselling uh, its existing customers. So, you know, if you are an MSSP that's working with certain vendors, uh, you know, be aware it's possible you might be getting more of a, a hard upsell on additional or, or premium features. Uh, and maybe this is even an opportunity, if you don't overplay your hand, uh, that you can leverage to your advantage if your vendor is trying hard to uh, retain you. Uh, there was another senior principal analyst that was quoted in the article that talked about how more and more organizations have shown interest in uh, vendor consolidation over the past uh, years um, because of the uh, operational inefficiencies uh, of having a hodgepodge uh, of uh, vendors. Uh, and so uh, security leaders now may be tending to favor vendors with uh, broader portfolios uh, of solutions or services uh, to reduce some of that com complexity. So again, MSSPs may want to take notice, uh, note of this themselves because uh, maybe that's how their own clients are thinking about them uh, and their uh, portfolio of services. Uh, so there you go. That's going to be that headline. Uh, next one for you, Ryan. Uh, the cybersecurity industry recognizes International Women's Day. So in a quirk of calendaring, right, we are recording this a day after International Women's Day, and it will come out obviously several days later into the world, but uh, we want to add our voice, right? You've heard us talk at a number of occasions about the fact that we don't have enough humans, we don't have enough retention of humans, and we need to be paying attention to the cybersecurity workforce. No matter how cool our software is, we need more humans. 
And we should take this opportunity to say, we need more female humans. We need more of all of these kinds of advanced leaders and contributors. And it is on us as the providers and as the current incumbents in this industry to not only make this an industry that is interesting and dynamic and something that a young woman would want to explore, but also that we recognize and that we respect the contributions of the people who actually do this for a living and that we celebrate and contribute to equality, to equity, and to opportunity across our industry. So uh, what we would like to say is there's not nearly enough humans. It is against everybody's best interest to make this an inhospitable environment for literally anyone. We just cannot afford that kind of behavior. But that's not a good enough reason to recognize International Women's Day and to celebrate the contributions that women make to our industry and across the, the overall technology industry. We should do it because it's the right thing, and that's the way we want to uh, advocate for development of the industry going forward. So thank you very much for, uh, for letting us bring that up and address that topic in today's conversation. Uh, headline number four, let me toss it back to you. Uh, we are focused here on Enterprise Browser aims to offer secure access to legacy Internet Explorer applications. A bridge to the past, Bradley. What do we need to know? <laughs> yes, well, uh, Steve Zier over at uh, SC Media reports that the uh, secure enterprise browser company Island uh, last week announced that it was offering the ability for uh, companies running uh, legacy apps that rely on Internet Explorer to uh, access them for an extended period of time before ultimately transitioning off IE, which is really no longer supported by Microsoft. And this will prove helpful to IE users, of which there are still uh, about 28 million as of 2022, including many organizations in healthcare, manual manufacturing, government, uh, et cetera. Uh, now, uh, secure enterprise browsers are a hot uh, up-and-coming new category of cyber solution that adds a security layer at the browser level, offering a way to control what the user can do when accessing applications from within the browser, things like the sites you can visit, the data that you're allowed to gather, uh, et cetera. Uh, now, VentureBeat uh, just reported late last year that these uh SEBs, or again, secure enterprise browsers, have become a bit of a hot item among the venture capital community, taking in millions in investments. Uh, SEB companies are, 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 are filling a need in that uh, web browsing has become a key access point uh, for a lot of employees, especially hybrid employees that access a lot of their core work functionality from the web, from the cloud. And yet browsers remain very fragmented in terms of their user bases, and they've grown very complex over the years with a very expanded reach that rivals uh, even operating systems. And so browsers have become increasingly susceptible to browser-based cyber criminal attacks that can result in a device compromise. And so again, SEBs are supposed to address this growing problem, and it'll be interesting to see if this uh, category becomes a, a must-have or a nice-to-have among the business user community. Uh, and so with that, that brings us to, drum roll please, our irrelevant news item of the week. Now this is a real news pitch that Ryan or I have received in our inboxes for reasons that are entirely, are, bleh, are entirely inexplicable to us. Uh, but we'll see if somehow we can make it about cybersecurity. Uh, are you ready, Ryan? I am always ready and looking forward to these items. 
All right. Well, in that case, uh, here comes the pitch and uh, actually works very nicely since you hinted at some people trying to take uh, some vacations coming up. In the spirit of the upcoming spring break, the most Instagrammable pools in the U.S. have been revealed in a recent study analyzing social media data. Uh, the study by BonusFinder.com analyzed social media metrics to find the most mentioned and snapped pools from around America using data compiled from Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And uh, by the way, if you ever attended a black hat conference in Vegas, then you should be very familiar with the number one entry. It is the Mandalay Bay Beach uh, pool complex. Uh, not surprisingly, a lot of Vegas represented on the list. Uh, Vegas neighbor, the Mirage Pool was uh, also up there in addition to the Neptune Pool at Hearst Castle. Uh, so, uh, and then some other uh, Vegas pools as well. And, and so I ask you, Ryan, uh, very simply, what to you makes a great uh, pool uh, experience? What, what is a cool pool? See, now that is the good question that we all ought to be paying attention to as an industry, right? Especially given that half of our industry is presently buried in two or three feet of snow. Everybody wants to have this conversation. And, and we all know, right? Having a good pool is nice, but having an Instagrammable pool apparently is more important in this world. Um, my criteria for a good pool is A, water, B, a sustainable temperature, see, ideally, a, a, a very good beverage to go with it, and then interesting people to talk to. Uh, that gives me enough latitude that that could happen in literally 10,000 places around the world. I'm a big fan of being in a pool. And <laughs> if it can be with a sunset by the beach with the infinity edge. Hey, you know what? That's cool. But if it's also just happens to be in the parking lot of a Hampton Inn near the airport, someplace where uh, I just get to go sit in a hot tub and let that day's stress melt away because I was on an airplane from here to there and, and having that stress, it's not as good, but it's still good, right? Like my <laughs> philosophy is... Uh, for those of us who do not live in a swimming pool, we should not be nearly so picky about the experience. There are, there are some deal killers, obviously, right? Like, I believe that uh, other people's too loud music and screaming and partying and whatever might make me get up and leave. But uh, sure. uh, cleanliness, I, I would think, you know. Exactly. Cleanliness is absolutely going to be a deal breaker. And uh, uh, certain people's choices of pool fashion are going to cause me to <laughs> scratch my head sometimes. Um, but you know what? I, I'm an equal opportunity pool enjoyer. I, I don't know about you. I, I just would like to spend more time in swimming pools. Okay, you no, know, I mean that that that's fair. I mean, here's kind of like my my priority. I don't. I can't talk today. Here's my criteria. Um, you know, I know people who, first of all, can sit by a poolside all day. Uh, you know, dip their toes in the water, uh, order a cocktail, read a book, float on a tube. Uh, I have to admit, I, I would start to pull my hair out after a while. I, I find that really like incredibly boring uh, to me. And I, I know this makes it sound like I'm, you know, like 10 years old, but I, I prefer a pool that has some kind of fun or interactive element to it. A water slide, a basketball hoop. I mean, I've always wanted to try one of those 
swim up blackjack tables that they have, you know, yes. in Vegas, speaking of the, the Vegas pools. Um, I mean, by the way, the, I've been to the Mandalay Bay pool. It's, it's great. And it's beautiful, Absolutely. sandy and tropical looking. And I love all of that. I mean, that's <laughs> definitely, it's got the wave action, you know, great. But I, I do, I like there to be some kind of uh, activity, be more than a place to cool off. What One more note about this. A couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to go to uh, Costa Rica in the La Fortuna region. And we went to a, like a thermal hot springs resort pool. And you'd think that would all just be pretty much relaxation and drinking. Those pools were steamy hot, like 100 degrees, but they also had actual water slides, like fast <laughs> water slides. I had, It was so weird to me. I'd never been down like a hot water slide before. So that was kind of different. But again, that to me is what makes a great pool. You, you, know, you know that conversation about the frog in the pan of water, right? Uh, <laughs> Slowly I'm, boiling. Exactly. You put me in the hot tub and allow me to acclimate. I'm fine. You drop me in it at 40 miles an hour down a slide. I think I might question my my decision-making process. Uh, one last note on the pool topic. Uh, have you seen the pool in London that is cantilevered out over the edge of the top floor of a skyscraper where uh, the pool, it's an acrylic. It is made to be indoor and outdoor, but if you swim into the outdoor part, the bottom of the pool is also <laughs> see-through acrylic, and it is, I believe, if I might be wrong here, 35 or so stories up into oh, the air. Um, I like pools. I'm not getting in that pool. Uh, yeah, that might be one of those where I feel like I would do it to say that I did it, but I probably wouldn't hang out in it for too very long. See, it would be like one of those things where environment. I, no, that is one of those where it's like quick Instagram out. Uh, you, know, you, know, you, you uh, might set an Olympic record for the 50 meter dash, right? You uh, <laughs> swim in, swim out, get that uh, uh, Olympic record. <laughs> exactly. And, and so uh, with that, metaphorically, it's going to be time for everybody out of the pool because we have to end the show. We've run out of time, but uh, don't worry. We will be back again soon for episode number 13. Uh, meanwhile, feel free to check out even more cybersecurity podcast content on the SC Media, MSSP Alert, and Channel E2E websites. Until next time, I'm Bradley Barth. And I am Ryan Morris, and we would love to hear your comments, insights, and feedback on this top on the topics we've been covering today, as well as any other topics in the business of cybersecurity. So please do reach out and send us your information. We'll keep the conversation going on the next episode of Cyber for Hire, your inside source for cyber outsourcing.